Well, good morning again. Um, again, glad that you are here with us today. Um, this, uh, we are continuing uh, the series that's up there on the screen, On the Way with the Resolute One. And we said that that comes from uh, Luke 9.51, where Luke is beginning really the largest section of his gospel, where Jesus knows that the time is drawing near for him to go to Jerusalem. And what awaits him there is what we just sang about, suffering and death on a cross, a gruesome death, a burial, and then a resurrection, appearances to many, and then his ascension where he is now seated at the right hand until the Father makes his enemies a footstool and then he will return. And so he uh, has... Knowing that that is what awaits him, he sets his face resolutely. He's like, that's where I'm going to go. Now, Luke is not taking us on a geographical cruise to get there. Um, we Westerners, we wanted everything sequential and linear. And it's thematic that that is the intense focus of Jesus. And particularly knowing that that's coming and the clock is ticking, he's now turning a lot of his focus to training the 12. And we're going to see that particularly today. Um, today's topic, <clears throat> if we were all honest, hits every single one of us. The topic is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is everywhere. Hypocrisy has always been everywhere since the fall. And we'll talk about what that is, how to spot it, and what to do about it. That's where we're going to go. But I just want to say particularly, I love that Eric shared what he shared. We are a confused, the land of confusion, to borrow the regrouped Genesis title, song title. We live in the land of confusion. Um, I would also say we live in what's increasingly evident that personhood is diminishing because we live disintegrated lives, whether we're like confused on which person to follow, but we're also dabbling here, dabbling there, going here, giving myself to this, but oh, I gotta, we've talked about this a lot, that all of us have attention deficit disorder or maybe attention misdirected disorder because we are, for whatever reason, we feel like that's where wholeness will be found. That's where peace and life will be found. That's where I will have it. And... Particularly, I think uh, I would say this, not only do we live in a land of confusion, we live, we live in a land of phones and phoniness. Now, if the phones really are just a tool to further you know, bring that about, the phoniness about, or to tempt us toward it, or to uh, cause us not to see through phoniness and follow whoever. And therefore, hypocrisy, though it's always been there, we are particularly prone already, but now it's amplified because there's a growing pressure for each of us as we grasp and grope for something. There's a growing pressure to project a persona that we have it together, that we have grabbed life by the tail, that there is a wholeness about us and we can curate our feeds and boy, looks pretty. We take the best vacations. Uh, we're the most authentic. Uh, we are the ones who can't believe the blessedness of our friends. Nothing wrong with that. But know that we are tempted toward curating that because 
as I said, personhood in our day is diminishing and it's being replaced or the counterfeit replacement of that is persona, which is another way of saying, here's a mask to, to continue on in hypocrisy. And Jesus is going to hit that square in the face. He's going to hit it with the Pharisees and he's going to hit it with his men as they are going to, more and more, they're going to be facing increasing pressure. And what will their lives be about when the pressures mount, when the intimidation comes? And so he's going to give them a warning. I want to read, um, Bob Deffenbaugh will be here next week preaching. I will be here. I just like to hear him preach. And um, that's Jenny Felker's dad, if you didn't know, but a lot of the world knows him because he's very well known on Bible.org. But he shares a story. um, He shared a story some years back where he heard on the news that there, um, I don't know how it got to the news, but eventually it did, that there was a man and a woman who stopped by to get some fast food. I don't know if it was burger, chicken, whatever. When they paid for their food, they were handed a bag and they drove off to where they were going to eat their meal together. Well, when the man uh, opened the bag, he found that it contained that day's proceeds for the little fast food restaurant. In other words, the cash and whatever in there must have been being readied for deposit. So, sorry. Back then, we have this paper. It was called money. Yeah. So, they found that in the bag, and so they drove back, and they handed it to um, the employee, and much to the relief of that employee who probably would have lost that out of their own check, I don't know, They'd only mistakenly done that. They were so relieved. And so the manager comes out and was so delighted at the man's honesty that he wanted to do something to honor him. And he's like, I, I think I might call the news and you know, maybe they'd send out a photographer and take a picture. I mean, we need good news in our world. And he kept you know, saying, and the man's like, no, no. I mean, he's being insistent, like, I don't want that. Like, this doesn't need to have any press. You know, just trying to be honest here or whatever. It wasn't ours. And finally, when the manager was so insistent, the man explained why he was so reluctant. He says, well, the woman that is with me is not my wife. That's hypocrisy. And he didn't want it exposed at that time. Now, I guess it got exposed because it was in an article. But what I want to say as we're getting into this You'll hear this at the end, but there's an, there's an old saying, there but for the grace of God go I. This is how we should approach this passage, how we should receive this passage, and how we humbly and soberly and alertly seek God's strength to live out what this passage is calling us to. It's going to begin with a, war- a warning if you want to turn to Luke 12. Verse 1, just ver- the very first verse there, Jesus is going to give uh, a warning. Luke 12, 1. We'll do the best we can to, to fill in some context. We can't dive deep on a lot of this. There is so much in this passage. But here's, I'm starting kind of in the middle of our passage because this is where, this is, this is the subject that Jesus is addressing. Luke 12, verse 1. Under these circumstances... After so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he, that's Jesus, began saying to his disciples, first of all, so there's a crowd, huge, thousands all over each other, but he's turning his attention to the disciples. Remember, this journey to Jerusalem 
his main focus is how do I coach up, train up, ready the men that are going to take the baton and lead my church. He began saying to the disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware. It's a warning. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, because, or which is hypocrisy. So what I want to look at is, first of all, this warning. The next slide, he gives a warning light here. Um, we have, currently, we're having some issues with our Yukon XL, and um, it's also a land of confusion because it's giving us multiple different warning lights, and it may just be because the sensor is off. Like, it's telling me the brakes are out of whack and this and that. I was like, but Jesus wants to be very clear. Here is the warning light, disciples. In these circumstances, or meanwhile, whatever has been going on, which we'll look at in a second, but the crowds are increasing, and the crowd's hostility is also increasing, and you're going to be the ones who are representing me as my disciples, my apostles, my ambassadors to represent me. Things, the pressure is going to mount. The intimidation is going to come. Hostility is going to come. Threats are going to come. It says, I want you to beware as you keep moving in this direction with me. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. It's hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy um, is leaven-like or yeast-like, your, your translation may say, and it's futile. What is hypocrisy? How is it leaven-like, and why is hypocrisy futile? We all know what hypocrisy is, but I just wrote down a couple things. First of all, for them in that context, particularly in the Greek culture, which is now they are in the thick of, you would have had the Greek theater, and, and one who was a hypocrite, or probably Hippocrates would be who they are, they were playing a part in a, a play. They would wear a mask, play the part of this character, and project, if you will, in my language, a persona. But that's not who they were. Now, they're an actor. That's what they're supposed to do. And the people didn't come to the theater to, you know, see Tom Cruise. They came to see Maverick. And so the, the hypocrite in their culture, uh, a hypocrite was not always negative. But Jesus is going to use it, particularly in the negative sense, warning if you go around living, and these are my descriptions, hypocrisy is when we are masking, when we are hiding, when we are, um, there's a facade that we project, but it's not really what's going on. It's not really who we are. Or parading religious self-righteousness, he'll attack that in a moment. And particularly doing that so that others may see you. And so that's what hypocrisy is. Well, why is it leaven-like? Well, I'm now out of my league, and most of you are because most of us don't bake, okay? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not look. I make eye contact with the people I know in here and know this. Um, but yeast is added to a lump of dough. Am I so far so good? It's added to a lump of dough, but what happens is that has an active agent, and it begins to work its way, eventually permeating the entire lump. Am I still good? All right. Yeast is often working. It's, it's, you know, it's hidden in the lump. It's often working, hidden, unseen, and yet its effects become pronounced. So that's why hypocrisy 
is like leaven. He says, beware it. Beware the permeating influence, the permeating infective influence of double-minded, duplicitous, double-living Pharisees, but also the other forms of hypocrisy, which aren't necessarily their variety, but others where you are tempted to project one thing when really there's another reality. He's saying the Pharisees' beliefs and way of life are incongruent. They don't fit together. They're not congruent. They don't match a life that honors and loves God with wholeheartedness. It's interesting to me just saying that because I love that Eric even prayed about that, uh, I believe, the wholeheartedness idea. It's interesting that every sermon really could come back to what Jesus says matters most, which is that God matters most to us, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What is he saying? It's a life that is wholeheartedly lived with all the oomph and the allness and the mentality, focus, attention, the gifts he's given you, even living within the limitations you have so that he is honored and loved. And Jesus says, whenever that's not in play, now we're being, now we're, we're kind of not, we're disintegrated. And God intended life and life with him, that Old Testament shalom type where it's whole and vibrant and flourishing for it to be wholehearted. And Jesus says hypocrisy is the opposite of that, and particularly the Pharisees, the disciples already knew this. It's leaven-like. They are infecting. They are influencing a greater and greater hostility toward Jesus and rejection. And we'll see that in just a moment um, at the lunch Jesus attends. Why is hypocrisy futile? Well, I'd call it the sooner or later principle. Look at verse 2 of chapter 12. It says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, but... There's nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. The reason why hypocrisy, putting on airs, putting on appearances, wearing a mask, living a double life, the reason why that's futile is the lights are going to come on sooner or later. So it's not just kind of important to think about. It's inevitable that hypocrisy will be exposed. And we'll get to what we can do about that. So that's why it's futile. Uh, the end of that verse 3 there reminds me of Ecclesiastes 8, 12, and 13. I'm not going to quote it exactly. But basically... We could be deceived, again, confused. When we look around and we know somebody's being deceptive, we know somebody's living in sin, and we go, well, they seem to be getting away with it. And Solomon, in his wisdom, turns the lights on on that deception that we can all go toward. He said, it may seem like they or you are getting away with it, yet I know it will go well with those who fear God, who fear him openly. What is he saying? To fear God in that passage really means, let's just live with the lights on. And when we fear God openly, when we live in light of and the reality of his presence, then there's no excuse. There's no cover-up. There's no pretty gloss. There's no putting a filter on your Instagram life. He says, sooner or later, it's going to get exposed. 
So it is futile. Now, what, is, what does hypocrisy look like? Let's, let's embody it. Let's see it. The next slide there. Hypocrisy, what it looks like. And I'm, I'm going to divide our time into looking at these two. If hypocrisy in one way is two-faced, you're one way with one group of friends and the other, another way with another group of friends, that's two-faced. There are actually two faces of hypocrisy that are in this passage. There may be more, but there are two in this passage. And we're going to look at the first one. If you'll back up to Luke eleven thirty-seven to 54, because he says, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. We're going to go back and look at a lunch, a lunch that Jesus was invited to, and he was invited to this lunch by a Pharisee. Look in verse 37. It says, Now when he had spoken, that's speaking of Jesus, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. What a, now when he has spoken, lets us know something else was happening. Well, that's something, if you were here last week, if you, or if you weren't, look back at 11.14. Verse 14, Jesus cast out, a demon from a man that the demon was causing to be mute. And then the man spoke. And it says, all were amazed. Some said, I think he did this by the power of Beelzebul or Satan. And Jesus shot that logic out of the water. He's like, why would Satan go against himself? His house and kingdom would fall. A divided kingdom can't stand. He said, so the real issue then, if I didn't do it by Satan, then it was the finger of God by which I did it. So now you've got to deal with who am I? And he says, there's no neutrality. Those who are, uh, there, there are those who are with me or against me. If you're with me, you gather others to know who God is, or you're a part of the scattering. There's no neutral ground. And then he says to the third group, not only were some calling him Satan's worker, but some were those who were sign-hungry skeptics. They're like, well, we just need one more sign. One of those from the heavens, like Joel talked about. Like, make some stuff rock up there in the sky, and we will immediately. And Jesus says, the problem is not evidence. It's your eyes, the way you see me, really. It's the heart seeing me. Uh, the heart is wicked and rejecting me before, no matter the evidence. He said, so... Are you, are you able to take in light so that you're, you can be full of light? Or you actually have a darkness in your heart that, that causes you to dimly see me or reject me? And he says, in fact, and this is where Luke likes to point out Gentiles. He says, in fact, people in Nineveh, those, those wicked Gentile pagan Ninevites, they repented at the preaching of Jonah, which probably wasn't that good. And we only have one sentence. It's like, you know, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Like, Sounds like a great sermon. I mean, it was at least brief, right? That's what y'all are looking for. Um, but he says, someone greater than Jonah is here. And then he says, also another Gentile, the queen of the south, so wanted to hear and was so intrigued and had a heart ready to hear from God's wisdom that she made the trek to hear Solomon. He says, but someone greater than Jonah is here. Someone greater than Solomon is here. And in fact, this generation is wicked that just keeps putting it off and putting it off, saying, well, we need a sign. We need more evidence. And it's when that happened that he's put the Pharisees in their place. He's put the generation in a, you guys are confused. You guys are also headed toward greater and greater hostility toward me. And I'm telling you, that's not going to work out well. Now, when he had spoken, 
a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. This sets up the whole scene. I believe Jesus did this intentionally. Now, some of you moms, you might be worried that Jesus didn't care about hygiene. This is not actually a hygiene or hygienic washing they're talking about. This is that the Pharisees had ritual ceremonial washings. That was, and it was not prescribed by law what was taking place here, but was a tradition. And so they, Jesus evidenced by walking into his house, he accepted the invitation, he walks into the house, he bypasses where you would do this ceremonial washing and goes, and then for all of us would be awkward, reclines at table, which means you basically lie down on an elbow, leaning on the chest of the person next to you. And boy, he did that, and he wasn't ceremonially washed. And this Pharisee is shocked. It says he was surprised. Anytime there's a surprise, anytime there's something that people are like, wait, what's going on? Jesus, make no mistake, he's not the victim of some guys are going to turn their hostility. He is instigating this. Again, I want to help you not have a weak view of Jesus. He is not milk toast. He is not a pushover. He is in complete control, and he knows, because the man doesn't actually say it. He doesn't say, well, you didn't ceremonially wash. Jesus just knows it. Look at the next verse. But the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter. So he's talking about, you know, they're really thorough in their dishwashing, which I can appreciate. He says, but inside of you, you are full of robbery or greed and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? What's Jesus getting at here? He's saying, you guys are all about the outside. You guys are all about appearances, all about the externals. He says, the outside is clean, but the inside is not. Now, this may feel very rude to us. <laughs> Jesus is invited to dinner. The guy's opening his home. This is not a one-on-one -on -one lunch, by the way. This would have been, because we know there's more than others join the conversation. Probably his disciples are there with him. Probably multiple Pharisees and lawyers or scribes were there. This would have been following up from what just happened and what Jesus was saying out with the crowds. Now he's going into a house, and it would have been very common for rabbis, teachers, scribes. Hey, we want to, the Pharisee could have, let's give him a benefit of the doubt. He could have wanted to hear more from this rabbi from Nazareth. He could have wanted to hear more, maybe, or maybe his intent was somewhat insidious. We don't know, but it would have been a group. And Jesus says to the group, it seems rude, but again, they're used to exchanging ideas. They're used to having the temperature rise or fall. Their, their emotions, if you've, if you've been to the Middle East, their emotions can run hot and then it come back down. It's like our house, all boys punch each other and the next thing, let's play basketball together. This is their culture, especially when they were teachers. They would exchange ideas and have, you know, banter and debate, if you will. So Jesus now gives them three woes. We're not going to camp on them at all. They're very plain on the page of what he's getting to. So he calls them foolish. You're about the outside, not the inside. First woe is in verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, 
For you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, yet you disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Now, they were very meticulous and precise about getting, let me snip the exact amount of herbs so I get a tenth, so that I can pat myself on the back and go give that. And yet, what God is looking for, that's fine, but what God is looking for is a heart that's invested in that and a heart that is for God. And so, looking out for others interests more than your own. Loving your neighbor, again, love God with all you got, love your neighbor. It just keeps coming up. And he says, woe to you. When I, I, I just want to say this. I think this is a woe where it's got a little more um, denouncing in it. But woe is also just me. Sometimes woe is just a sigh. I just wish so much better for you. I think this is one of those where this is, if you will, an exasperated denouncing. Jesus is exasperated by the Pharisees, and particularly why he gets the hair on the back of Jesus' neck stands up a little bit more in these woes than other times when he's like, oh, Jerusalem, if you just only had recognized my visitation. The reason why is because the Pharisees were the leaders of God's people, and they were leading them astray. And now you're touching a nerve. You're touching a nerve, and it's because of your hypocrisy. Next thing, woe, not only do you you, you, you could be doing those things, but also you're neglecting the love of God and justice for others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplace. They love for others to esteem them. They love to walk by, oh, who, me? You know, or uh, Matthew 6, which we're not going to go into, but he, he warns about, hey, watch out, the Pharisees and the other, like they love to pray to be seen and heard praying. They love to clank the money in the big kettle, so you can hear it, which is why Jesus later points out, see that widow, nobody noticed her. When she dropped her, her little coins are so brittle and small, you didn't even hear them. And yet he's like, that's generosity. He says, woe to you Pharisees. You love the greetings, the chief seats. And then woe to you for you're like concealed tombs and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. What he's saying there is you're leading people to death. A tomb for them would have, you know, a dead person would be there. You would have been unclean. You, you'd like, you're supposed to warn people about tombs. You're supposed to, to keep them away from that. And yet, the way they were living, they were like unmarked graves. You couldn't detect it. All of a sudden, you walk over it, and now you're unclean and out of the community for a time. He's saying you should be helping the people, but you're leading them to death rather than life. And then a scribe or a lawyer says, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. Now, these were the seminary profs. They were the ones who studied the law, knew it backwards and forwards, and they were the ones who really helped, if you will, um, the Pharisees who were more the teachers and the leaders of the people. But the scribes would be the ones like, hey, let me help you out in this area. Let me help you interpret this. So, if you will, the scribes are particularly ir irritating to Jesus, if you will, because they're giving confusing, faulty, add-on elements to the Pharisees who are then leading the people not to life, not to God, but to a self-righteousness and really, ultimately, because they could never keep up with it, an exhaustion. A woe is us. We can't even do all the things you're telling us to do. We, we can't breathe because we didn't do this. We, we moved to the left. We we're supposed to move to the right. 
you know, we're supposed to not, um, well, they didn't drive. My, my Jewish friends in, in Memphis, they didn't struggle with this. They just drive a block away from the synagogue, park, and get out so they can look like they're walking to synagogue. <laughs> but it's that kind of, at some point, man, we can't take it because the Pharisees and the scribes are, but he says, you are weighing men down with burdens hard to bear while you yourselves not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And then he says, woe to you, you build the tombs of the prophets and it was your fathers who killed them. So you were witnesses and approved the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them and you build their tombs. He's not saying, um, what he's saying is the same murderous spirit and rejecting of the prophets, many of whom died, you have that same murderous spirit, that same rejecting of God within you. He says, for this reason, also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some of them they'll persecute. He's saying, so now you're going to stay, you're going to keep in line with them, and you're going to reject me and my apostles and others after them. You're going to persecute them, intimidate them, send many of them to death. He says, all of this says that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. That seems unfair, but here's why. Because all those prophets were pointing to this time. Galatians, in the fullness of time, or the fullness of the times, God sent forth his son. And when they do crucify, and Peter says, hey, yeah, you did it, you nailed them, but this God appointed for this to be happening. The prophets were pointing to Jesus. And so now, in the fulfillment of the times, now it's the call is coming. What will you do with him? Who is he to you? That is the question of life then and now. And he says, from the blood of Abel, who's not a prophet, but he is in the line of the righteous, why, is he, uh, why did he uh, die and therefore his blood was shed? Well, his brother was filled with all kind of envy for him, and he killed him. He said, from Abel's blood to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you lawyers. Here's the last one, and this is where it breaks the camel's back, the straw that breaks the camel's back. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. The very ones who should understand and say they understand, the key of knowledge is, or the thing that it should lead to, Jeremiah would say, is, you know, don't boast if you're rich or, or well-postured in the community with reputation or wise, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, declares the Lord. That's, and he says, you don't know. You claim to know, you claim to understand. You for sure let people feel that way. You lead the Pharisees to teach in such a way where the people are like, I can never get there. And he says, not only do you not know, but you're hindering everyone else who is entering. This is why, if you read carefully the Sermon on the Mount, the key version of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7 through is Matthew 5-20. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. I may be paraphrasing slightly at the end there. What is he doing? He's comparing the righteousness the Pharisees feel like they have or put on. Their lives are masked by and projected this persona of we are righteous. But it was a religious self-righteousness. It was a part they were playing. And the reason why the Sermon on the Mount is like, what? Who could exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? And Jesus is saying, well, 
It's because I've come and I've fulfilled all righteousness. And you're right, you can't do it. You can't do theirs or meet God's requirement. But I can and I have and I will die in your place so that my righteousness could be yours. Which is why Matthew 11 meant so much to those who heard it. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Why were they heavy laden? Because the scribes and the Pharisees were pressing it down on them. They're never good enough. They'll never match up. They won't keep up with the religious Joneses enough. No wonder Jesus was so winsome. Well, what happened? When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile. They questioned him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Now they're ratcheting it up even more. Let's go back to 12. The second face of hypocrisy, the first one is to you know, perform for the applause of men to be seen as righteous, to be held in high esteem, to major in the minors, which is a big part of what Jesus is really bashing them about. But now he turns his attention to the disciples and says, well, there's also hypocrisy can be a temptation of yours because you're now going to represent me as I'm going to go and you'll be my ones to represent me. And there's going to be increasing hostility and pressure and intimidation. And he wants to encourage them and assure them and let them know he is with them, but also calling them, don't fear the intimidation. Don't fear the hostility. Don't worry if you don't know, you think you're not gonna know what to say. My spirit will give you the words, will give you the disposition, will give you the approach in each moment as it comes. But the temptation for them would not be the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, putting on a performance, but theirs would be, well, let me mute my faith. Let me keep it quiet. They're not hiding a secret double life over here like that's seedy, but they may be very tempted to conceal that they're a follower of Christ. They may, Peter at the fire with the little girl, be tempted to deny that they know him because association with him will be met with hostility or even death. So let's just read quickly 4 through 12. He says, I say to you, my friends, he's setting the tone. This is a call, but it is a call to friends. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after they have, uh, they have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the, the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. But he wants to assure them because they belong to him, because they're valuable to him. You can be encouraged of God's presence and his love and his care. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet one of them, yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear you are more valuable than many sparrows. We've already talked about what he's meaning for us or for the disciples. If we belong to him, our fear of him is not a fear of judgment, whether we're in or out. Our fear is one of a reverential attentiveness to remain aligned with him, practicing his presence, and to not quiver, and to live with a life that matches the love of our good Father, the love of our sustainer, the love of our Lord, 
so that we might stand even though it causes our knees to knock. So they may be tempted, a hypocrisy to, to tail tuck their testimony, to kind of back off. But he says, no, no, no. Verse 8, I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how, how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you were to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. He's saying, fear and trust God, confess him before others, knowing I'm your advocate, I got your back. The, the comment there about the, the, um, the unforgivable sin, there's much more material on that in uh, Matthew's gospel particularly. Let me just say it this way. <clears throat> The confess before men, and that can, there can be momentary lapses of not doing that out of fear of, of men, out of looking to save face, etc. The pressure of the moment, that's Peter. Ten would be, in the, in the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit would, I have come to a settled, hardened conviction that I reject the testimony of the Spirit about Jesus. Now, some would say, very specifically context, I'm assigning that he is from Satan. That's for sure in that ballpark. But it could be when you have come to a place, because he even says, you can say, I don't know if I believe it. I don't know if I believe it. I don't know if I know that I, I have my doubts about who Jesus is or whatever. There's still the opportunity. But when you come to a settled, hardened, convicted, conviction place that I reject him or I assign him, to, now you're in a place where, now, that being said, because of God's grace and mercy, and we don't know, there's always the opportunity or the possibility that God may say, I'm going to break through that stuff. In fact, he's the only one who can change any of our hearts. But he's saying, fear and trust me, or trust God, confess me before others, and know that my spirit will help you in times where you want to pucker, where you want to cave and perhaps mute your testimony and not be bold, not be confident. He says, I want you to know, just like he promised them, or he will promise them after his resurrection, when you go out and you're making disciples, as I've called you, lo, I am with you always. And his withness means strength, means sustaining you, means words in the moment when you need them. And so we're back to what he warns. He warns, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the permeating influence that can really infect us, but where he would say for the Pharisees and the disciples is, because I'm particularly concerned for those you influence, because I've sent you to the neighborhood you live in, Jesus says, to be part of influencing that neighborhood or that school where your kids go or that workplace. I want to be represented there. I don't, I don't want you to be weirdo Christian bumper sticker guy or gal, but I am looking for you to be my ambassador, full of grace and truth. And when the moment is there, and when you can, in that moment, have an opportunity, do not tuck your tail. Do not be afraid of what could happen to you and know that I will give you the words. Because when we don't, when we back off, now we have basically concealed. And ultimately, 
And whatever is concealed will be brought to the light. For us as believers, we don't have to fear a judgment being cast into hell. But we do, in a godly fear, need to remember that we will face the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. We don't need to be afraid of that. We're, we're in, if you will, because of his grace. But we will be brought to account for what do we do with the opportunities and the gifts and the relationships he's given us. He says, I want that to be a well-done, good, and faithful servant moment for each of you. So beware the temptation to back off, to mute your testimony. Well, what's the antidote for hypocrisy, if that's the issue? And we're going to talk about this throughout this month. Um, we're doing practicing the witness and way of Jesus each month, a new practice. And this month's practice is confession. But I would tell you the antidote, antidote to hypocrisy is integrity or wholeheartedness through confession where I'm not concealing, where I'm not pretending, where I'm not masking, where I'm not excusing, but it's my whole life lived before him. Jesus said this in Matthew 15, similar to our passage of the next slide. He says, therefore, you hypocrites, rightly does Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What confession literally means, biblically, it means to say the same thing. That's all it means. So when he says, confess me before men, say the same thing about me that is true. That's not confession like get in a confessional and say, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. That is confessing, saying the same thing about what is true. So we can, part of confession is confess who the Son of Man is. Part of confession is confess what's true about us as sons and daughters of the king. But also part of confession is, particularly dealing with hypocrisy, is confessing where we have lived a double life, where we have neglected him, where we have stepped back and concealed, or where we have concealed so as to project an image that you might esteem me, you might be impressed by me. Ultimately, things will be brought to light, and we see this all the time. Many of you perhaps have been part of a ministry or where uh, the pastor has had a fall and all that you thought he was or all that you thought your women's college, you know, discipleship leader in college was, and they blew it. Again, there but for the grace of God go I. But that's why it hurts so much. Because you thought, you're like, wait a second, I don't even know you. And confession gives us the ability to know ourselves before God and to know one another and to give grace and to give mercy and to give room that you don't have to be perfect. I'm going to read a couple quotes here. Chase um, Rapogel, um, the men are going to, if you're joining us, the men are going to go through his book called Five Masculine Instincts. And I'll read that quote in just a second. But I want you to hear this. He says, as a pastor, I sometimes get discouraged that the church I need to have my glasses on, has too often exasperated a tendency to hide behind facades and cover up the truth of ourselves. Bonhoeffer wrote of the church, though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship, that means like the religious e, he's not meaning that complimentary, permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, 
living in lies and hypocrisy. I'll, I'll, I'll quit there and read this quote from him. He says, confession, what is it? To say the same thing, confession only requires that you give up the game. You take off the mask. You no longer do the charade or the parade. You embrace what is there, the truth, with yourself, with God, with someone you trust. Next slide. Confession is not ultimately about words. It's about a willingness to acknowledge what is. It's a willingness to open long, shut doors to the light and the grace of God, to be who you are before him. First John, we're very familiar with one of the verses. John says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, so there's discrepancy, hypocrisy, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then here's the verse you know. If we confess our sins, it doesn't say he will roll his eyes and he will let you have it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Two more quotes and then a, a final little illustration. Rebecca Lyons in Rhythms of Renewal says, you cannot heal what is hidden. If you're in a place of real, you know, I've been living a double life or I've been living trying to just keep building up my persona so others are impressed with me and it's exhausting you, this is God's invitation to find rest and letting that go, to find healing. She says, you cannot heal what is hidden, but when you confess something out loud, you bring it into the light where it can be healed. The power of guilt and shame has no hold on you any longer because secrets lose power when they exit the dark. I can tell you when we talk with our boys about various things as they're growing up, one of the things we'll tell them is, you walk in the light, if you're honest, whatever it is, you could have stolen a fleet of vehicles if you're honest about it, now we are in a good place to extend grace, to talk it through. But when it's concealed, when it's hidden, now you're the one suffering. G.K. Chesterton says it this way. Some think it's morbid to confess your sins. I say that the morbid thing is to not confess them. The morbid thing is to conceal your sins and let them eat your heart out. Because that's the happy, or which is the happy state or the basically the pretentious, pretending state of most people in highly civilized communities. Which brings me to David. David sinned, David hid it, and he hid it for a long time. But here's his confession, eventually, after he confesses sin to God, here's his journal entry about what not confessing, not, what not walking in light, what hiding his sin did to him. We're going to close with this. Look at the next slide. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit or hypocrisy. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah, that means pause and take that in. He's saying the vitality that all of us long for and think we're going to get if we just go after this thing, we think we'll deliver. He said it's exhausting and it will drain you and it's heavy, but it's actually God's grace that heavies us so that we might turn to him. The last verse, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt 
of my sin. I said to begin, there but for the grace of God go I. All of us, each of us is capable of hypocrisy. The antidote, the, the call, the invitation from Jesus is don't sit in your hiding. What makes hypocrisy um, temptable is crowds that pressure us or crowds that we want to be accepted by. And also, if we live a, an increasingly isolated existence. See, this is why I was specific to say our practice this month is confession within community. If, no, if you're not around people, if you're not around people with an intention of knowing one another, you are putting yourself in a very dangerous place. And I would say it's a, it's a for sure thing hypocrisy is coming. And Jesus says, I, I want to invite you out of that. I want, you to, I want to invite your mess into the mess of community where my grace can abound. But as long as you hide your sin, you're projecting a persona, not a person. And you can get angry at them that they don't really know you and they don't care to know you. They, you're not letting them know you. He says, confess the sin to me, confess it to others so that my grace might be abundant. But no, all of us, each of us can go that way except for the grace of God. And because of my sin, my going after sin and all its graspings, including this hypocrisy, there because of the grace of God, Jesus resolutely went to Jerusalem to the cross that awaited him where he took my place and yours, where it says, Scripture says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on your behalf and mine, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now clothed, no longer naked and exposed, where shame and guilt dominate, but we're clothed in Christ, and that's how the Father sees us. It's because of who Jesus is. We're not going to sing the last song because it's too hot and it's ready to go. <laughs> Let me pray and enjoy your spring break week as we go. Lord, just want us to be quiet before you for one moment. And where there's discrepancy in our lives, be gracious right now to bring that to mind, to heavy us with it. But then tune our ears to hear you saying, give it to me, give up the game. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to build a persona. I love you. I care for you. And may we respond to your grace with confession, just calling things what they are, being willing to give up the game so that we might know life and life to the full. Help us, Lord, where we are so deceived by the confusing messages. Help us, Lord, where we are so temptable to either want to get the applause of men and women or, Lord, where we want to save face and kind of maybe even save our neck so that we're not canceled in our culture, in our neighborhood, in our places of work. Lord, cause this to be a place where we know we're sinners. We know we're sons and daughters, but we know we're sinners and where grace can be abundantly offered and received. Otherwise, Lord, we're just pretending. Forgive us for when we do so. We pray as David prayed, search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in us, any um, hypocritical way in us, and lead us in your everlasting way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great spring break, or maybe yours is next week. I don't know. We'll see you next week.